welcome to InsurTech Insider episode 127. I'm Benjamin Ensor. In today's episode, we're going to talk about open insurance. Open banking has been at the forefront of news over the past few years, and for good reason. Open banking has affected the wider financial services industry massively in recent years. However, what does that mean for InsurTech and the insurance industry more generally? And what could open insurance look like? Join us in this episode as we explore what open insurance could mean, what the opportunities and challenges are, and what kind of developments we hope to see in the near future. As always, I'm not alone, but I'm joined by a panel of outstanding guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, David Breer, 11FS Group CEO. How are you, David? Yeah, super good, Benjamin. I have just about got my voice back from After Dark last week, so I'm feeling pretty good. Nice, relaxed after a weekend, and uh, yeah, looking forward to a million meetings this week as well. It was fun watching the uh, podcast being recorded live. Nice to get everybody back in a real world situation and uh, have some pizzas, have a laugh and have a beer and uh, yeah, see what happens. The community is pretty damn good, isn't it? It's a great community. Well, speaking of community, we are also joined by Sean Milley, founder at Bright Blue Hair and co-founder of Delegated Authority Specialists Green Kite Associates. Welcome back. How are you doing today, Sean? Yeah, I'm doing really well, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Can you give our listeners um, a little bit about yourself? I mean, I know you've been on a number of uh, these before, but a few people may not have met you. Yeah, no problem. So I call myself an accidental techie, and I'm obsessed with how tech and data enabled value generation and innovation in financial services does or does not create brilliant outcomes for a colleague, client, and customers. And uh, Bright Blue Hair is my purposefully micro consultancy. That means I'm small by design, David. I know 11FS is is huge by design, but I'm small by design. And one of the things I do um, is work with and advise leaders and boards on big but emerging operational and resilience issues like corporate digital responsibility, like ESG and open insurance and finance. And just so everyone knows, uh, my nerd credentials on open finance and open insurance, I do have a few, um, including in 2021, I co-chaired an open finance focused work stream for Tech Nation that resulted in a great report, actually. I would say that I know, but it is a good report called Open Finance, the Future of Insurance Innovation? Question mark. Fantastic. We are also joined by Gillian Bedanes, Lead Product and Propositions Development Americas at Swiss Re Solutions. How are you doing today, Gillian? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Can you give our listeners a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure, sure. So I work at Swiss Re, um, Global Reinsurer. And um, within our reinsurance business, we have a solutions business called Swiss Re Solutions where we're selling um, and providing risk and data tech insights to our clients to help them across the value chain and to help them grow. And I have the, the pleasure to get to work on the new and innovative stuff within that. So I lead a team in the Americas where we're building out new propositions, so meaning new sort of solutions. And we're working with partners to bring things to our clients, and that includes a lot of tech partners, and, um, and working on building new products. And Sean, you know, you said you're an accidental techie. I think I'm an accidental insurance person. Um, I, before I came to Swiss Re about five years ago, and before that, I worked in tech and innovation roles, but in different industries. But I've, I've been hooked on insurance and, and stuck around for the last five years. You know, Gillian, I just need to let you know as well that um, I'm an outside inner when it comes to insurance. So not only am I not a technologist, I've never actually worked full time for any type of insurance firm either. So I guess we must really mean it, right? <laughs> Both of us. I think that's really common. People get into, stumble into insurance and discover that it's actually really, really interesting as well as really important. Okay, well, thank you both. Uh, thank you all. Welcome. Let's get started. Um, so what we want to do is let's start the conversation by looking at looking briefly at open banking and thinking about how things stand today. So first question, I'm going to throw this one to you, David, because uh, it's an easy one. And I know, I know you like easy questions. Um, for, for people who are not familiar, what, what is open banking um, in a nutshell? Man, you say that's an easy question, but is it? Like, actually, I mean, because open <laughs> banking means so many different things to so many different people in that sense. So, I mean, back when, when was PSD2 launched? I'm, I'm good with... Uh, 2018. There you go, 2018. So um, off the back of PSD2's launch, which is the Payment Serv- Services Directive 2, uh, then actually the UK decided to try and kind of get a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to what the regulation would be doing, but also the ways in which it would be implemented within the UK 
market. So open banking in the UK context is very much about the exposure of APIs to allow organizations uh, that are regulated to do so to pull together exciting and interesting experiences, both for consumers uh, and people within organizations to, to benefit from those things as well. Um, on a broader context, I think people have been using open banking and, and broader into you know, open finance as a kind of a bit of a catch-all for a, a power shift, really, with regards to who can actually start accessing consumers' data, who really owns consumers' data, like shortcuts, the answer there, it's the consumer, um, and really sort of putting in place the building blocks, the Lego blocks, for us to really build a, a very different future for financial services. How did I do, Benjamin? Does that sound like a good answer? I think I think that was excellent. Who, <laughs> who who benefits who benefits the most from from open banking? And this is you know to, to to all of you. Is that is it just customers who benefit, or do other parties benefit as well from open banking? So so I think ultimately the customer is the person who benefits most. But actually, all the way through the value chain, uh, I think uh, the indirect benefit is customers' benefit. But that's very similar to how we've seen lots of other regulations play out as well. I think arguably the thing that this does is create true competition in a real sense for services that fundamentally benefit the consumer so that they benefit. Um, but all the way through the value chain, I think it puts good pressure on the, comp uh, the competitive landscape, essentially. I'm going to ask the question, well, maybe less of a question, more of a slight statement. Um, case unproven on the consumer front and the SME front. Actually, I think, and perhaps this is something that we're going to explore a little bit further in the conversation, what I can absolutely say is who benefits the pay tech sector is benefiting big time, not just in the UK, but internationally as well. So as usual, right, In, in uh, we've become, I guess, I think it's as usual when we look at fintech and tech and any other type of, of tech, who benefits most first and foremost, to my mind, right? are the firms who start up and succeed in getting investment, actually, at this moment in time. So, Gillian, I don't know whether um, whether I'm saying something that uh, is, is off base for you, but yeah, let's, let's throw that in there for now, Ben, and we can develop it as you see fit later in the conversation. All right, let's, let's, I, I, I like this hypothesis. Um, let's explore it a bit further. Let's first, let's define open insurance. Um, what's the insurance equivalent of open banking? Gillian, I don't know if that's a fair question to ask you, but how do you think about open insurance? What is open insurance to you? Sure. So to me, it's, you think about what data does your insurer have? So at the ba most basic level, there's the information about what sort of plan you have, what coverages do you have, what um, premium are you paying? And, you know, it seems simple, but probably even those of us in the insurance industry, we're not going to recall it. Um, you have to dig out your, your files and your password to try and find what that exactly is. So that's the basic level. Then you think about the data that you've shared with your insurer when you apply for a quote about your business, about the assets you're insuring. And then there's finally things about you that the insurer might have from your time with insurers. So um, any claims data, um, you know, paying your premium. Now, I think, can all of that be made possible and shareable? That's probably something we'll discuss today. But that's sort of the vision of the possibility of what open insurance could enable. You're definitely going to need some standards to share that type of data because it's all going to be in horribly different formats and every single insurance company is going to have it recorded in a different way and so on. Is there any movement towards industry standards um, for any of those types of data that, that, that you've seen? So, you know, in the U.S., we're, we're a little bit further behind. I think what you've seen in the U.K. and Europe, where we haven't seen any regulation um, in open finance, there are insurers and, um, and entities are kind of moving on their own and creating their own relationships and their own standards. But creating that standard across the industry, still coming, perhaps. Sean, you, you came in with the suggestion that the, only, the, the big winners from open banking have been Paytex. So let's say we start you know, as we are, we start moving towards open insurance in Europe. Um, what can insurance companies learn from open banking? Is there, is there a scenario where it's not just insurtechs who win? I mean, is, 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 is open insurance payday for insurtechs or do other, other parties benefit too? 
Oh my goodness! You know what, Ben? I, I mean, I bought it for myself by making that statement, didn't I? And I and I, <laughs> and I do believe it. Um, but what I also believe is what Gillian's talking about, which is the potential for all kinds of underinsurance issues, perennial underinsurance issues, particularly for SMEs, because uh, it's a problem that insurance has been trying to track crack for a very long time, right? And also potentially um, for consumers. So I don't want to get too hung up on the jargon but as you know in the UK we have the open banking implementation entity which is looking at the real world impacts since the the CMA9 was created um, and mandated to share data and open up APIs and, and basically create the infrastructure the pipe work that would enable this question mark power shift but certainly the intention was there to it was a it was a radical policy intervention on behalf of the Com competition markets authority right they basically said there isn't enough competition consumers and SMEs are, uh, are paying the price for that so we're going to re-engineer the system all of that is also true um, and so when the OB, the Open Banking Implementation ent Entity, starts looking at outcomes, I mean, I'm to be honest, I'm less impressed by numbers of how many people are engaging in open banking, although their stats suggest, Ben, that it's the number of people using regularly um, open banking and therefore presumably benefiting from it is, they say, going up 10% every month. So that would kind of indicate that there are some tangible benefits there for both SMEs and, and consumers, okay. I'm more interested in perhaps the more qualitative research that the impact evaluation frameworks that the OB has also developed to try and really get under the skin of where individual consumers and individual SMEs are actually finding the benefits. And, and it is true, I mean, I don't, I don't want to keep my tongue any more planted in my cheek. It is true that you can bring out all kinds of evidence and particularly for SMEs around cloud accounting and, and the benefits of actually um, being able to manage and see finances in a, in a way, grasp them in a way that they just, it just wasn't possible to do previously. But I still think that as, as a, I was on, a, on, a, on another panel, an enormous global FinTech Fest hybrid event held in, in, in India, 12,000 people at least engaging with an event that was also talking about open finance and open banking in India and other Indonesia, Asia, a lot of activity. And, you know, those those individuals that I was talking with there, you know, we're, we're talking in, in numbers that the because of the size of those markets, so we'd be really, really excited about. So two million SMEs benefiting from from particular solutions. So I think, yes, there's a huge amount of upside and in insurance, you know, particularly around the underinsurance, particularly around, um, uh, to Gillian's point about giving people access to everything they need to know when they need to know it and with the minimum of fuss so they can make better decisions. But I'm really, I, I, I really want to see those standards. I want to see particularly standards around the consumer data rights and also those guys, a whole range of, of, of entrepreneurs and really amazing fintech founders saying what they really, really need is for regulators to really, really bear down on using those open APIs because actually that's a standard that's getting in the way of innovation and, and real world engagement with customer at the moment. And that is something that only regulators can do. David, we've seen very different approaches from regulators in different parts of the world, right? For, for with sort of open banking and PSD2 and so on, from the sort of very laissez-faire approach in, in the United States and some other markets to much more hand-holding and much more directive um, directives coming from the European Commission and, and some other governments. Do you think there are any lessons for the insurance industry around which of those approaches has been more effective? Yeah, I'd say um, all of the theory sounds great, but then if there's any threat to anybody's existing P&Ls, nobody's going to step forward and make that change. So it has literally required, you know, regulation and forcing organisations to do this before they did. Uh, and even then they did it kicking and screaming, you know. So so I think there's a um, there's a challenge to this, which is, you know, it sounds very sensible putting the customer in the, the, the you know, the, the driving seat when it comes to their data. But actually, uh, I mean, and we've been saying this, I mean, we'd say this for, for a very long period of time, way before it was put in, but, but it's all stick and no carrot. Because essentially for the big organizations, you're in a situation where, well, actually, what's my benefit here? 
you know, actually, you know, I'm a custodian of this data. I'm a custodian of this customer. I'm a, you know, I have my products. What's the benefit to you of doing that? And I think actually we're starting now to see uh, the the organizations that are sort of differentiating on that. They're the ones that are doing the bare minimum and just adhering to the regulation. And it's the ones that are going beyond that. Um, bizarrely, I, I go back to, and I'm not sure if I necessarily got the uh, the nuance of this right in terms of the way in which I was sort of communicating it, but, but I feel like because all banks have had to expose APIs and have had to go through that pain in that process, whether it's now fueling an open banking piece of capability or whether it's fundamentally just changed how they deliver change within their organization, that for me is revolutionary because actually, you know, um, thinking of a consumer not just as somebody who buys one of your products, but potentially somebody who consumes a service, an API that you deliver, that's a that's a forced cultural change within gigantic organizations who are not used to creating software, but are used to tweaking financial instruments. And that, that for me, creates a, a very different way of doing things, but fundamentally then ends up benefiting the customer because people are actually doing things. So, you know, I think that that change for me seems seems really, really significant. Whether, and I, I tell your point, Sean, whether people are like, look, you know, X many open banking capabilities that are powered by those APIs, I think it's fundamentally changing the infrastructure, you know, landscape within financial services in the UK. And that's just rippled globally now in terms of how those things are happening. Do I see it playing out in the same places where, you know, the regulatory approach is very different? I think it's going to be really difficult, like unless you force a bunch of organizations to do something they don't want to, but then benefits everybody else, it's going to be really difficult to get them to elect for it. Nobody elects for heart surgery, do they, unless you're being forced to. You're absolutely right about the the cultural change and the, you know, the change in the organizations being driven by that. Gillian, do, do you agree with David that there's like very few insurance companies are likely to rush to do this? Yeah, I think you're bringing up great points. And it, to be honest, when I talk about open banking with my colleagues here, whether, you know, clients, insurers, or in conferences, people don't really know the term in the U.S., honestly, unless they're very, really paying attention to the what's happening in, in Europe. It's just not top of mind here, right? What is top of mind is embedded insurance, um, companies thinking about their API strategy, how can they plug in, become pluggable in these digital um, opportunities. But the idea of kind of being forced to, to do that is new. And I agree. I think that would be something that would really change um, the dynamics here. You know, one thing I was thinking about uh, and how this might change is really, I think insurers are are a little bit really scared of their customers, right? If you think about the way that insurance works, it's it, our policies are super complicated and um, it's hard to navigate. You you really, for, for not anything that's not the simplest policies, you need someone to advise you, you need an agent, you need someone to walk you through it. And if you want to understand what happened in your policy, do you, you need to go back to that person. If you file a claim, it's often difficult. Um, and all of this is to, to maintain the customer. And I think there is this mindset shift that insurers need to take that's saying, look, the, the world is changing and consumers are expecting something different. They're expecting tech and systems and their services to work around them and to accommodate to to their needs and their preferences. And, um, and that's a good thing. You know, I think it's a mindset shift to say there's opportunity there. Let's meet the customer where they are and let's reorient the way that we operate and build um, to serve that customer. Uh, see, I, I think that uh, that sort of orientation towards, uh, I mean, Benjamin, me and you've talked about this a lot when there hasn't been mics around, but, you know, that that shift from product-centric organizations to service-centric or organizations in terms of going higher up the stack, and to your point, Gillian, around, you know, in, embedded in that sense, you know, arguably a lot of the things that you need to put in place from a technological perspective to allow you to do that in terms of exposing APIs, exposing services and and being service centric when it comes to an organizational uh, principle about how you're structured as well. Like whether we get there through, you know, again, that's carrot, right? Because actually how many organizations have we seen in financial services benefit so dramatically by taking their product to the place where the problem is from a consumer's perspective? So actually, if you can embed and solve a better problem, but deliver that through APIs, whether you get there because of a carrot and that opportunity, or you get there because of open banking and a stick, then 
who cares, right? The customer benefits both ways, don't they? Well, in theory, yes, David. But I, I think we have to take on board the fact that embedded brings with it some real issues for insurance, actually, and, and for the whole of financial services. And, and in the UK, you know, I'm interpreting your service orientation in through through a consumer lens and saying customer centricity. They may not be the same thing, David, okay, but that's that's the way I'm looking at it. Consumer duty, the FCA consumer duty has has is a revolutionary shift because it's moving from a rules-based to an outcomes-based approach for all financial services companies, including non-bank payment firms. And the whole community. Even, I mean, non-bank payment firms actually aren't used to looking at conduct risk. They're not actually look, used to looking at product development um, risk in the same way that insurance and other areas and banks are because they're required to for the privilege of being regulated in a brilliant market, which the UK is. You know, those firms, I know, you know, I'm listening to people trying to work out what that actually means for them. Yeah in what they do and if your key business is providing consumer data to other people so that they can make money from it you know that's that's not untricky to work out and unpick and in and <laughs> I'm, I'm using my words carefully obviously and that that is a people change that is a process change that is a technology change and really and importantly it is a culture change so i, I and this this uh, you know i have some real issues here with saying embedded automatically means better customer outcome. Embedded means, could mean, an even less informed, unthinking, unchallenged sales process that results in the customer actually turning around and going, I didn't realize I bought that. And our insurance has enough issues, Gillian, I don't know if you'd agree, but I think we've got a major trust issue and we have had for years in insurance. We have to be really careful about learning lessons around what happens when you when you take consumer trust for granted and in our market where, you know, for the most part, one of the reasons people don't read the T's and C's is because they assume that in the UK, somebody who's looking out for them will have and that they will be protected by regulation. And, you know, we can't rely on that. It doesn't work. Regulation doesn't work that way for a start. So, hmm. Yes, I mean, lots of opportunity, but I, I don't think these these key, some of these key issues um, are simple. They have long histories, long legacy, long tentacles. And, you know, it's, I think, a mature sector, which I think fintech is and paytech rapidly is becoming, should be able to talk about this stuff openly, you know, without pretending that it's all really easy and it's all sunlit uplands from here on in. Yeah, I so so agree with you on the cultural point. I mean, this is a this is a fundamental. I mean, how how much of that do you think, Sean? And I see this in financial services more broadly, not just in insurance but banking as well. That comes down to the fundamentals of of business models, because essentially, you know, we are we're shifting. Uh, when I say services, I mean it's as much about the ongoing usage of the product as it is the procurement of it. And I think so much, you know, insurance is is worse than banking in that sense with regards to it's very much just about the buying process. And then once you've got it, you've got it. And, you know, we'll see you in a, in a year. Um, but actually, increasingly, the the service is about reinforcing the the benefit of having that product. You know, you think of anything else that we, you know, love in, in our life when it comes to the, the uh, brands that we affiliate with or anything that we have, they use those moments to reinforce the reason the purchase decision in the first place. Um, that doesn't really happen in insurance because usually you've got a problem, you know, somebody's crashed a car, your pet's died, somebody's died, like bad things have happened, right? You're ringing your insurance company. But actually, I guess that's because of the traditional way in which the products are constructed and therefore the traditional relationship that we have. So I think increasingly those services need to break down that piece, which includes breaking down how those business models are constructed. I think in, in that sense then, services for me as you say become fundamental to well it's a cultural shift within organizations but equally that has to require a business model shift because you know a piece of paper because it was three villages away and it took me a day to get there made sense for an annual policy but in the world that we live in of immediacy and you know hyper connectivity then the way in which insurance products are actually created i think needs to fundamentally shift as much as the distribution of them yeah. So, so what I would say is that my experience 
in insurance in the main and certainly those businesses that you know are interested in being here and, and making um, returns and profits and delivering great experience for their colleague and their customers really do care about that getting the business model right um, and, and making sure that people are buying what they really need and you know I refer to the under insurance issue but also the over insurance issue which can come also from just not having everything in the right place right some of the things that we've talked about so there's a lot of change happening actually is there enough moving fast enough no but I think you know things like for instance you know there are some very very important structural things that are in there to protect consumers so your insurance company isn't allowed uh, to 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 market at you the benefits of you having bought your home insurance or your pet insurance they can only talk to you specifically to that 28 days before your renewal that's partly the so-called service period but it's also partly because the business models require a distinct price to be set and that underwriting price is set 28 days and out of that before and out of that comes everything else because you quite rightly you'd want to know what am I paying and, and quite frequently why am I paying more than I did last year human nature being what it is you very rarely question why I'm paying less right so so I think there are some structural things I definitely think there's cultural stuff David I mean goodness me I I there are some areas of the market who don't actually think they have customers at all they have shareholders right so and, and that brings with it all kinds of behaviors um, internally around what's measured, what's prioritized, what's done. Um, but but do I think that the, the sector is actively thinking about subscription, pay as you go, other ways of in, integrating in people's lives? Yes, I do. Um, I, in some ways, I don't think innovation is the problem in that sense. There are some other areas, but I really do think when we talk about a cultural shift, how many people still tell you that they, their goal is to own the customer and own the customer data, right? We're talking about that shift in it's the customer's data, but there's no customer data right in the UK. There still isn't at the moment. And actually, again, I've sat on panels with people, including Played and other, you know, really successful open open banking, open finance, pay tech firms going, do you know what the single most important thing that you could do to help us develop our business is to bring in a customer data protection or a customer data law right now, please, Bayes. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if that entirely answers your question, but that's what your question sparked off in me. Right. We're now just going to take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So now that we've covered the basics of open banking and some of the opportunities that that has created, let's talk a little bit more about open insurance and some of the challenges and what developments we hope to see going forward. Um, Gillian, I'd love to start with you. You were talking earlier about, firstly, how people aren't really even aware of the term open insurance, but also uh, you started talking about embedded and some of the opportunities and challenges that brings. What do you see as some of the challenges facing open insurance or, or the idea that you know consumers' data might be portable and that we might have sort of more control over, over our insurance data? What do you think some of the challenges facing the industry are going to be? Well, I think first, you know, David, you pointed to this, the, the ability for insurers to really be ready to, to do this technically. I think there's still a huge lift. There are some insurers that have been active in building out their API strategy that will be more ready, but... There are others where even, you know, being able to, to share data, connect these sources of data, it's, there's a lot of complexity there. You know, I think secondly, the, the point you mentioned, mentioned, Sean, around trust is really critical. Um, how, can we, how can we make this safe for customers and, and help customers understand that it's safe and understand the implications of, of what they're doing, what they're choosing to share? 
you know, that's something that, that we're really watching closely to, to see when that might be ready for the industry. But, you know, I think, yeah, there are other challenges that you can think about the sort of pros and cons from the insurer perspective of what this might bring. But um, those two pieces, the tech and the, the trust, are, are the key things we have to get right first. What about the role of sort of brokers and agents? Because isn't there an argument to say, well, this is sort of what the broker or your agent was supposed to do for you anyway. You know, they were supposed to take your situation and go find the best policies for you. And sort of, you know, particularly a broker, they were supposed to sort of pull it all together for you. And of course, that does happen at the sort of top end of the market, but maybe not so much for sort of more mainstream consumers. Is open insurance a big threat to brokers and agents or is it a huge opportunity for them? I, I think it could be an opportunity. So my team, we we take a really customer-centric view to everything that we do. So we take time interviewing customers of the products we're trying to build or um, agents often as well. And we hear from them some of the same things where they, you know, they want to, to look at different options for their customers, but it's hard for them. <laughs> like just the complexity of having to ask for the same information over and over again, you know, deal with the different systems where they might be entering information. There's a lot of simplicity that could be gained if they could say, you know, consumer, do you allow me to, to move this data that you've already given and share it and, and shop around for you? I think, you know, customers, especially if you think about like SMEs, there's, there's a lot of value that the agent is bringing. And I don't think that's going to go away. There's just an opportunity for them to make it an even more seamless experience for customers and then think more about what they can bring in terms of advisory and share their value that way. So it's all coming back to the tech and their customer trust again, mm-hmm. in essence. Yes. Do you agree, David, that this is I mean, this is just about the, or not just about the tech, that the tech is a big part of this. And that the, the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges of the industry is just getting that tech in a place where this is even possible. Um, I, I think fundamentally, pretty much every organization is just uh, the only sustainable advantage is your ability to change quickly and cheaply, really. So actually, so much of this is getting the technology in place to allow you to to deploy a digital operator model in that sense and therefore do things. But, you know, I'd say 99% of any organization's problems is people, Uh, not because you've got bad people, but because of the ways that things have always been done. I mean, uh, essentially tackling the distribution channel of a broken network is really hard because if it's it's working, why change it, right? Um, This isn't just an insurance problem. If you see you know, ultra high net worth distribution for banking, then it's really difficult to change that model because actually where are the relationships? Does it make it the right one? Does it give the right experience to consumers? No, but it's really hard to change it because people don't like change, right? So uh, I think it is a, a difficult challenge, but I think it's one that organizations ultimately have to face into in the same way as they need to face into, you know, is the branch network the right way of distributing, you know, financial services in 2022? Is brokers the best way of doing it for insurance? Probably not, um, but it's just a difficult change to make. Yeah, very much. Um, Sean, you, you were talking earlier about about trust and, and customer trust and so on. And of course, if somebody sees my bank account details, that's potentially embarrassing for me. There's things people I might not want people to see, perhaps. If somebody starts to see my health insurance records, you know, that's a whole level deeper sort of uh, into my privacy. It, wh- how far does open in, could open insurance go and how do you, you know, where, where, where do the barriers and protections need to be if, you, if we start looking at sort of health records and, and so on? Is that too far? Well, yes, isn't it? Because what we're learning now, the lived experience of people uncritically, and I'm not blaming individuals because who knew that social media data would be used to change the way people think about being alive on the planet. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the program about Molly, social media and me on the BBC recently about the pernicious impacts on young people's mental health and a whole range of other, you know, unforeseen, but now lived experience where we're all aware of it across society that actually There is no such thing as good data or bad data, but there's data that can really cause harm. And there's human, the the realities of being human mean that we're susceptible to act as good, bad and indifferent, making us, I guess, think and use data in ways that, that, you know, regulators certainly weren't aware of 10 years ago when we began, this began to enter society writ large, right? So where does that fit with health data? 
I wouldn't trust my health. I don't trust my government with my health data. I signed a petition saying, I don't want you to chuck my health data into a big pot that might be managed by somebody I don't know that could be offshore, that could be a big tech provider that is regularly lambasted for lapses in privacy or cyber protection or whatever it happens to be. So that's the first thing. I think we have to think about what society's lived experience with the use of big tech and surveillance capitalism or less pejorative phrases that people in the business would prefer us to use. I think we have to be mature and have those conversations now. I think the second thing is, where are the ethical frameworks, standards, governance guidelines, the same issues? This is a cross-border international world. Your data does not stay in a tightly delineated space by the nature of business and the nature of fintech. So we need the standards, we need the ethical frameworks, we need the type of auditing structures that people like For Humanity are busy creating because they don't exist at the moment in a structured way that everyone can understand, the rules of the game are really clear, and we're able to, 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 to pinpoint where liability is, and more importantly, pinpoint where redress is. Those are foundations of financial services. If something goes wrong, we need to know when it's going wrong, we need to be able to put it right, we need to put people back where they were before the shit hit the fan. So that's the second thing. And I think, you know, that as a society also, particularly with regard to life insurance, you know, there are moratoriums industry-wide on what you can use to calculate life insurance. And they're there for a good reason, right? So we need to think very carefully. And first and foremost, it's about what are we going to do with this data when we've got it? And would it meet the requirements of the, the consumer duty? Would it? Because I'm not convinced. I don't think, I think there are lots of use cases for making money. Compelling customer use cases? Hmm, are there really? And ones that also embody protections and seeing the future from a systemic stability point of view, which individual consumers are just not going to do. That is the job of the regulatory community and the thought leaders and the policy shapers who, whose primary goal is to retain stability as well as growth and innovation, right? So there you go. That's four or five things um, in answer to your question, Ben. <laughs> That's good stuff. Gillian, I mean, obviously Sean made a, a ton of interesting points there, but one of the sort of fundamental ones is about there having to be a clear customer benefit for this to make sense for regulators to pursue this and so on. There's also this point that probably health insurance is probably not the place to start or indeed life insurance. Do you see a clear customer benefit in areas, let's say, less contentious areas, let's say car car insurance, where the primary risk is how I drive, secondary risks are where I live and, and what kind of vehicle I have and so on. Do you, do you think there's a strong customer case there? Do you think we'll see movement there? Or do you sort of lean towards what some of what Sean is saying of maybe it's too soon? I think, I think what Sean is saying is, is key. We have to do this um, thoughtfully, you know, has to be um, with the right intention, right, for the customer. And I think there's a lot of, of threat um, about that going wrong, depending on who gets engaged and, and regulation can help. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of great customer opportunities when you think about being able, the portability of your data. If for like auto insurance, you know, something simple, really the process of, of shopping for auto insurance is it's still kind of complicated, you know, you, you still need to know things. I'm not a car person and I have to go find, you know, okay, what, you know, go back and the details about my car. And those are things maybe when you're first buying your car, you have in mind, but um, are you going to think about now, you know, shopping around? I think, I, I think personally, I can be getting a, probably a better rate. Um, maybe there's better protection. You know, I move to a different place. Um, there might be some opportunities there. Um, now, if I could easily, you know, be kind of, um, shown different options that would that meet my needs. Um, that's, I think, what, what could be enabled. But, um, you know, even more simply than that, perhaps, is the ability to just keep up to date with your insurance and see that alongside maybe other banking information that you have. So, you know, could you see in your, your sort of financial advisory app or even your bank app, here's my insurance and here's, you know, the premium when it's coming out. Um, here's when it, the, the program expires and, you know, here's my renewal date. Just keeping that top of mind, I mean, that would be very useful for an insurer as well. So 
many people don't even know or remember the insurer that they're insured with. But if that's top of mind, you're seeing it alongside your banking data, your credit card statement that you're checking all the time, um, you know, just ability to, to boost that brand. So some simple applications there. And you can imagine for, for businesses, you know, um, if, if it's integrated into a platform that already knows how many employees they have and can see when employees are joining the company or leaving the company and so on, you could have policies that were automatically adjusting based on how many people you've got, who they are and, and, and so on. Um, David, do you, what kind of benefits do you see from from open insurance? Are there ones beyond what Jillian's just been talking about that you see? Or? Yeah, I think the I think the benefits for the customer I think are really broad in that sense. I mean, um, I mean, Sean, we were talking about this before. You know, Norwich Mafia when it comes to fintech and insurtech, but a player like uh, you know Snoop, all the benefits that they can bring by gaining access to those pieces of data and being able to make it easier for people to switch. So for, from a consumer's perspective, you know, I can see the benefits, but again, I, I sort of come back to the, from an insurer's perspective, it's a, um, almost a foray into a different way of, of serving customers, which I think is an incredibly healthy one. But again, you know, back to, back to all the points that Sean was making, it's difficult, right? It's a very difficult change to change to make in that sense. Um, I think a lot of the benefits are are really, you know, friction removing ones. You know, I, I've kind of made this point quite frequently, but, um, you know, everybody listening to this is doing so because they're really interested in insurance. And we should keep reminding ourselves that we're not in the majority, guys. Like this is not like a, <laughs> most people don't wake up and want to do insurance stuff, you know. So actually, most of what the benefits are about streamlining the processes that otherwise are just grudge moments in everybody else's lives, whether it's life insurance, health insurance, car insurance, whatever, like it is the friction removal. And actually, that is a benefit to the to the businesses servicing those customers, because the easier it, you make it to be with you, then the more likely people will stay with you in that sense. Um, and that's where I think that service move comes more strongly because it allows organizations to create a, a greater level of distribution, a greater level of differentiation to a certain degree as well. Because there's many things in my life that I am pretty sure everything I buy on Amazon is more expensive than if I went and bought it somewhere else, but I stay because the service is great. And uh, that happens in a lot of walks of life. So how can you create differentiation? It's, you know, sometimes it's just the service. You know, I think we forget sometimes that, you know, some of the biggest insurance um, providers are also retail banks who have millions of customers. So, and that's one of the reasons why people are queuing up to try and partner with them. So I'm a special advisor for the Lloyds Banking Group launch program. And, you know, second year in, uh, 80 institutions wanted to partner with Lloyds and, and you know, that that's there for a reason, right? Mainly because the number of customers and also the size of that brand. And what do we mean about brand? So we talk about someone like Aviva in Norwich, David, and we're talking about Norwich just because we're in the east of England, David and I, and that's obviously you can't talk about the east of England and insurance unless you mention Aviva somewhere in that conversation. So those institutions have spent a very long time building up understanding and a version of customer trust. The progressive firms that I speak with and who, who talk to me about what's on their minds and what they're doing, want to use technology and transformation and all the rest of the language to do an even better job of earning and keeping that trust. So, you know, I, I, I do have a problem. So I'm a critical friend to insurance. So believe me, I get very exercised about all the crap, crappy processes, colleagues not being treated properly, customers not being at the center of stuff. But Equally, the flip side of that is, you know, there are some there are lots and lots of amazing individuals who go to work every single day determined to do the best job for customer. And often they are hampered by bad technology and bad process. But many, many, many of them are, are beavering away, really actively trying to, to put that right and trying to also justify the fact that you know, they've they've spent a very long time creating the kind of trust that scale up brands, you know, spend a lot of money trying to catch up with through various advertising and all the rest of it. And I think you know, when we talk about, you know, perhaps talk about the larger incumbents being a bit slow, well, frankly, I appreciate some friction, actually, when it comes to sharing my data or opening up 
the brand that I've come to trust to a potential cyber or an ICO or any other kind of regulatory misstep, I think, you know, friction has its place. And just to go back again to consumer duty, being frictionless can can quite and has quite often meant in my experience listening to and observing how certain fintechs operate can lead to customers not buying what they think they really want to buy, not understanding what they've bought, consequently being overinsured, underinsured. And then inevitably what happens is at some point in time, they realize that and the trust index goes down even further. Sometimes I'm going to say this, it's going to sound slightly um, carry on, Ben. Um, sometimes friction is really good, right? <laughs> If you don't say you made Trent Benjamin, we can't be friends anymore. Um, so, uh, I mean, but I, I think it is an interesting point, but I think that's a problem across all of financial services more broadly. I mean, actually, you, I mean, you it was like you were reading my LinkedIn, quite frankly. I've worked at Aviva, I've worked at Lloyds Banking Group, you know, I've worked in those organizations. And actually, the the challenge for many of them is, is comes back to what we say, it's the, the tr- sort of traditional way of financial instrument and distribution of that financial instrument rather than that intertwined nature of well how do consumers really use this on the on the flip side of it because customers aren't really customers they're buckets of risk and actually that becomes a uh, almost a um uh, self-fulfilling thing in the way that you think about people, you know, in in that way. But uh, and I, well, look, we've seen the breakdown of this, like um, the boxes that we used to put under people's seats to do uh, telematics for car insurance is changing the way in which we can access data. Now that's on a cell phone, and that you know follows you around all the time. But actually, I just think there's so much more we can do in that sense. I, I think the other thing is not only are we all insurance geeks in that sense, but we know more about this stuff in terms of what the risk is on the other side of it. You know, we've seen packaged account scandals for mis-selling. We've seen PPI. We've seen all of these things. I mean, I, I always sort of go back to every time I'm traveling for business, the amount of people that I see signing up to Wi-Fi and giving away every bit of data they can ever leave possible just because they need Wi-Fi. Do you know what I mean? Like if the if the trade-off is good enough and the benefit to the customer is great enough, then I th- I honestly think that the data thing sort of melts away, not because it should, because people should be so much more protective of that. But I think it continually will be because essentially, you know, people are pretty basic when they want Wi-Fi or a cheaper meal or a, you know, that's a cheaper car enough, insurance David. or whatever. Sorry, I know, and I, no, but it's, it's true. No, it's, no, but I, I don't think it's good enough to say it's true. You know, it really isn't. It's our job to create a, a systemically safe and stable market for everyone. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't work ultimately for, for everyone, including the innovators. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's good enough to say, well, consumers will give away their data because they don't know any better. It's our job, all of us together collaborating, who are interested in innovation, I believe, and making life better for colleagues and, and investor relations and all the investor returns and all the rest of it to say well that may be true but it can't stay true because inevitably people learn and then what happens is we get tarred with the same brush and that's just not fair well that's why though things like open banking have been great because actually standardizing you know screen scraping was a dirty secret for a decade you know everybody's internet banking had requirements to not share your details and not put them into third People did that thing because everybody loves pie chart, you know? So, but actually being able to give access and revoke access to those things by standardized APIs, well, that creates a a better place because it's allowing the consumers to do the things that they want to with the controls and capabilities that actually a standardized framework through regulation really brings you in that sense. I sound like a politician. I hate myself sometimes, but uh, but I I agree with you. It is a consumers are going to consume but the regulator's requirement is to give it in the the most controlled fashion to allow, to your point, well, possibly the attribution of blame and definitely the the action of recourse in that sense in terms of where you get to, right? I don't just think it's regulators, though. I think it's anybody engaged in the system. And I think there's a particular responsibility and accountability for the innovators, David. I really do. I really do. And that is not recognized as part of the business plan. The incumbents are held to much higher st- standards and it's not fair to them. It's, there's no benefit in some ways to being a good actor. Gillian, I don't know whether you agree with that quite in the way that I've put it, but you know what I mean. 
Yeah, no, I think really good points. I was just going to share, Swiftery has done some really interesting research on this topic at our, our institute around how do you create digital trust? And they broke it down to three things. So first, reliability, which is basically, does it functionally work? You know, that's kind of the first level to creating that trust. Is it doing what it will say will do? And that often isn't always there, right? So that's the basis. And then security, number two. So is it safe? Um, you know, is there some, is there language that makes me feel that this is safe? Is there regulations or ethics that they're using my data properly? And then the third kind of, it, it's almost like a pyramid would be reassurance. So um, the idea, am I doing the right thing? Is this, you know, is this in my culture and my generation or other people doing something similar? Um, and I think the, you know, there's opportunity to, to create that sort of digital trust if you think about doing this properly. Um, there's also a lot of opportunity to to not have digital trust, right, if you do it differently. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So, Gillian, I'd love to ask you one last question just to, to bring bring us uh, to the end. What, what developments would you like to see in open insurance in the next two to three years? Is open insurance actually attainable? What do you think we'll see over the next couple of years? Well, I'll say what I, what I hope. Um, I hope and I expect that we'll see some of the basic use cases that we talked about, the idea of just improving the customer journey. Um, what I hope is that it will enable new sort of business models. You know, I think if we look at what um, open banking has done or entities like Plaid, it's really enabled new um, companies and services to be created. So then my innovation mind starts to think about, okay, well, what can insurance enable? Um, what, you know, it enables you to do risky things, to, to buy a car, to buy a home, to take a trip. Um, and now what if we can, um, what could be enabled by that? you know, different services, advisory, things that none of us probably have thought about. Um, that's what really excites me. So a world of opportunity, but a real duty of trust and care to customers to make sure that there are no unintended consequences. Okay, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, there are a lot of issues here. I think we need another whole episode to, to, to dig in even more. Thank you all so much uh, for joining us. Where can people find out uh, more about you and your companies? Uh, Gillian. Yeah, so on, for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jillian Bedanes. And um, about SwissRe, you can find us on our, our website, SwissRe.com, and there's a lot of information about our solutions as well. And happy to reach out to chat more about these topics or um, people who have ideas where we might be able to partner. Sean? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Sean Millie and Bright Blue Hair. And David, uh, you're not very well known. How, how can people find out more about you? Always lurking on LinkedIn somewhere. So uh, yeah, that's that's usually the best place to find me these days. And you can find me, Benjamin, on uh, LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. So thank you all very much uh, for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you like what you've heard, uh, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, do leave us a review and tell us uh, what you'd like to hear more in the future. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider or find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much indeed and goodbye. <laughs>